Welcome to Fairfax, a podcast about what it was like to grow up in Los Angeles of the early 1960s. You might call it an audio memoir written and narrated by me. I'm Jeff Bushman. It's also a production of tjbsradio.com, where you can also find other episodes of this series and several others you might not run across otherwise. Today, I'm a process server, a professional writer, a private investigator, a podcaster, and a couple of other things. But in the early 1960s in LA, I was what a lot of other people were in those days. I was a kid. This is being written by someone who's been a writer from a very young age. For much of my life, I've had conversations with people who say they want to write a book. And often they don't know what the subject matter of their book would be, but they know they'd like to write it. What those people don't know is that subject matter drives the writing, not the other way around. So if I feel compelled to write about the history of Ukraine, which I don't, I would be driven to write that book. I would use every spare moment I could writing that book. On the other hand, if I feel an urgent need to write a book and I think long and hard about what my subject should be and decided ultimately on Ukrainian history, besides the fact that it would be a really dull book, I would tend to quit after a chapter or two because with apologies to Ukrainian nationals and one side of my family comes from there, I'd be bored to death. While still on the subject of writing and deeping from our exploration of neighborhood, when I was an adult and a part-time professional writer, a coworker at my day job said to me one day, in your opinion, what is a novel? Yeah, you probably didn't realize that was a matter of opinion. Anyway, my point about this being written by a writer, and of course, who else should write something, right? Is that a lot of the things we'll discuss will have to do with reading and writing. And this part of our work, of course, is no exception. Again, as this is written, the first season of the Perry Mason prequel series has recently ended. I haven't seen it, but my understanding is that the program takes a look at the fictional Perry Mason before he became a lawyer. The series is supposedly amazingly good. I may see it someday, but I'm in no rush. Part of the reason is that I love the original program with Raymond Burr. That Perry Mason series was about a criminal defense attorney in LA, and he never lost a case, at least not one they talked about in the series. As a family, we watched it every Saturday night, and that viewing, along with some other shows about lawyers, convinced me that I should be one when I grew up. Most kids, including teenagers, decide what they want to do for a living and change their minds a hundred times or so, not me. I didn't change my mind until I dropped out of law school, but that, as the saying goes, is another story for another time. Partly as a result of that TV watching experience, when I've gone to court as an adult representing myself in some landlord tenant litigation, and I called my wife to tell her the result, when she asked me how it went, I started humming the theme music to that first Perry Mason series. I had won. But back to the 1960s. Once a week, my parents would do their major grocery shopping at a supermarket called Market Basket. It was on Third Street, a strip mall, though I don't think we called them that at that time. And the store itself was just east of Fairfax Avenue. In later years in that same strip mall, they would put a Fisher's Hamburgers. And when I was a big shot, like fifth or sixth grade, I'd eat there sometimes with friends. But when it was time for the weekly shopping trip, I was too young to stay home alone if Stu, who was then 13, was doing something else with his friends. I'd be drafted to go with my parents. And after the first couple of times, I became a volunteer for a reason you'll understand in a minute. If you need to shop in a supermarket, going up and down each aisle to make sure you don't miss anything 
it's involving and if not fascinating will still hold your attention so you can decide how you and if appropriate your family will eat the following week if you're just accompanying someone you know yes even your parents while they shop it's about as exciting as watching golf on television or listening to two pipe smokers discuss their tobacco blends and i'll tell you in a later episode about how i stole that last line so one of the first times i went with them i noticed that the liquor section in the front had a revolving rack of paperback books. I know I've spoken about it previously uh, in terms of the price of books, but let me mention that again, in case you missed it before. Today, it's rare to find a paperback book that's new for less than nine or $10. While I know everything else has gone up, it seems that the amount paperback books prices have increased is more than most things. When I was a kid of nine, paperbacks went for 35 cents. And I'm sure I heard at the time that they had just increased from 25 cents. Hardcover books were usually around $4.95. Now, with most paperbacks now at $10 and hardcovers at $30, the paperbacks are about a third, or exactly a third, of the cost of a hardcover. In those earlier times, paperbacks at 35 cents were about 1 14th the cost of a hardcover. So the current relationship seems out of proportion. But at that time, I could go spend 35 cents at the liquor section and get a new paperback book. I would then go to the bench that the store provided for its customers near the front door to sit and relax. I sat reading until my parents finished their shopping and they would then take me back to the car and home. As I said about something else in an earlier part of the series, today that would be considered child neglect. But while in those days what I was doing would have been considered unusual if anyone had considered it at all, it was not seen as a dereliction of parental duty. And truthfully, I was thrilled. I got to sit and read and be interested in, hell, fascinated with something I was doing instead of going up one aisle and down the other and up the next until I was ready to scream and escape. Speaking of escaping, we'll be right back. But I wanted to mention something only remotely related. If you go to amazon.com and look up the book, You've Been Served, you'll find my recently published book by that name. It's available as an ebook or a paperback. Yes, it's got stories about some interesting experiences, but it's also about the ethics of the process serving profession. And it has discussions about the futility of trying to avoid being served, among other subjects. While you're there, you can also see our novel, Bobby's Been Shot. Now back to Fairfax. As you've likely guessed, most or all of the 35 cent books I bought every week were novels written by the series author, Earl Stanley Gardner about his favorite character, Perry Mason. I learned later that Gardner was actually an attorney who turned to writing because he was bored with the practice of law. He was an early version of Scott Turow or John Grisham. And as I look back now, he wasn't nearly as good as either of them, but the times were different too. The Perry Mason that Gardner wrote about was less slick than the character in the TV series as played by Raymond Burr. And there were some pretty obvious references to sex in the novels that would have gotten the program banned from 1960s television, even though the things that were in the books were very subtle. And I'm sure I missed more than I got. The books had intriguing titles like The Case of the Raving Redhead and The Case of the Failing Floozy. Okay, I made that last one up, but there was an emphasis on alliteration. I would start to read as soon as my parents started shopping and I had had a brief conversation with the man who ran the liquor department and had bought my book. Sometimes I'd finish the whole book, but usually I wouldn't, and I'd take the book home and read it during the remainder of the week. 
I always finished a book before the next time it was a day for the family's weekly marketing so I could buy my next book on that night. I kind of wish I had known that I wasn't going to be a lawyer but would become a writer. I might have spent more time analyzing what made a good piece of fiction and what didn't, though admittedly probably not that early. I'm sure I'd have taken different subjects when I got to college that would have caused me to be published earlier, but life usually doesn't happen in a straight line. And not so by the way, Perry wasn't my only weekly hero. But before we get to Travis, I need to mention an amazing coincidence. Years later, and in fact it was in 2020, I found the old Perry Mason TV series on Amazon Prime or YouTube, I don't remember which, and I saw the first episode that was aired, I think in 1954, when I was only three. It had an Earl Stanley Gardner-like title with the word redhead in it, although I don't remember the actual title. Maybe it was the case of the ravenous redhead or the repugnant redhead, I don't know. But the coincidental part was that the first episode had as Perry's improperly accused client, the actress whose name is or was Whitney Blake. I say is or was because I don't know if she's still living. Most people partaking of this work are probably too young to remember Whitney Blake, but if you are old enough, I'll remind you about her. In the old TV series Hazel, Shirley Booth played a smart-mouthed mate, a maid rather, to a family that was headed by characters played by Don DeFore and Whitney Blake. She played, that is Whitney played, DeFore's wife and half of Hazel's boss team. Whitney's daughter gained a little more fame. Her name, it is Meredith, is Meredith Baxter. And she appeared in three well-known TV series. The first one was Family, and then Bridget Loves Bernie, and finally Family Ties. The last of those also starred Michael J. Fox. Again, as a reminder, if you're old enough to remember those series, Family also featured Christy McNichol and James Broderick, who was the father of Matthew Broderick. And the second series also featured Meredith Baxter's then husband, David Burney. But all that TV trivia aside, I actually met Whitney Blake a number of years later than when I was watching and reading Perry Mason. When I was in my teens, my cousin and his then wife had a weekly get together at their home to which I was invited. A variety of different people showed up there and Whitney Blake and her husband, a producer for Norman Lear, would show up on a couple of occasions. Even later than that, I saw her from a distance at a theater with Meredith Baxter. We had never been friendly enough that I felt comfortable enough to walk up to Whitney Blake, but I did get to tell my first wife who I was pointing at uh, to her and that I'd met her. Big ego display. The other hero I met at Market Basket Through the Pages, written by John D. McDonald, was a guy named Travis McGee. McGee wasn't a lawyer. He was more of a private investigator, but he really wasn't. As he put it, he would do favors for people, and if they wanted to give him money as a gift, he would take it. I expect if Travis McGee was a real person and he tried to get that story past licensing authorities today, he'd be in the clink. But we didn't think much about that in those days. Travis lived on a boat in Florida and the boat was called the busted flush, which had several meanings. In poker, a busted flush is where you're trying to draw cards to complete your five cards of one suit. That's the flush. And you fail to make it. That's why it's a busted flush. It could also be a symbol of bad luck or a plumbing problem. McDonald was also good with titles and they always included colors. I don't remember the specifics any more than I do with the Mason books, but they were similar to the tangerine colored sky and the scarlet coat. They were what literary people would call pot boilers. That's a disparaging term, but they made a fine read when you had time to fill sitting on the market basket bench, at least whenever Perry Mason books weren't available. 
Speaking of TV, though, Mason wasn't the only lawyer. For probably a couple of decades, lawyer shows, like shows about doctors or shows about detectives, were on almost every year. Besides Mason, <coughs> pardon me, besides Mason, let me mention a few others in case you want to look them up and see if the videos hold up well. There was The Law and Mr. Jones, starring James Whitmore, who was really a fine actor. And in fact, the name of his character was Abraham Lincoln Jones. And he always had a, a painted portrait of Lincoln on the wall behind his desk. And I remember one episode where somebody had done something awful within Jones's office. And he turned to the Lincoln portrait and he said, I'm sorry you had to see this. <laughs> More than a little hackneyed, but uh, nonetheless appreciated at the time. There was also Sam Benedict, a show that only lasted a couple of seasons, but I can still remember the theme music. I would hum it for you, but I expect that might make you tune out. That show starred Edmund O'Brien as a lawyer of that name, who was actually based on a fairly famous attorney from an earlier day. Benedict was in San Francisco, and the lawyer who the series was based on, Jake Ehrlich, was as well. O'Brien was a really enjoyable guy to watch, too. He played a Southern senator in the film Seven Days in May, and he also played Winston Smith in the first film they made of the novel 1984. There was also Judd for the Defense, starring Carl Betts, he had earlier starred as the husband on the Donna Reed show. In Judd for the Defense, he played a lawyer who wore a cowboy hat. And I remember the show as being interesting, but I don't really remember anything else about it. I'm sure you can name a lot of lawyer shows, too, if you have a sufficient number of years on you. And many were much later than the period we're talking about. But, but one of slightly later uh, age was called Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law. And it starred Arthur Hill, who had been the principal actor in the film of the Andromeda Strain. His assistant, most of these lawyers in these shows had assistants, was played by Lee Majors, who was later in the Big Valley and was married to Farrah Fawcett before she got together with Ryan O'Neill. These shows were all great and the lawyers were terrific, but none could match old Perry. After all, some of them lost. Before we leave you, I have to admit that I don't know where you're hearing this. I don't mean where you are physically, but through which podcast app you're hearing us. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and a number of others. So wherever you're listening, please subscribe so you can be notified when the next episode of Fairfax drops, as they say in podcast world. If you go to tjbsradio.com, however, <coughs> pardon me, you'll also find shows uh, that you might be interested in and to which you might want to subscribe as well. Besides this podcast, you'll find shows about politics and romance fantasy novels as well. By the way, we're looking for someone who's really interested in sports and has always wanted to do a program. If that's you or someone you know, that person can contact us at tjbradio at gmail.com. No S in the name of the radio station and just tjbradio at gmail.com. Or as I said, go to tjbsradio.com to hear our other shows. And that's it for this episode. So please subscribe so you can be notified of when our next episode's available. And uh, even though you have to be leaving us now, please be kind to a, please be kind to each other. I can't talk. And whatever you do, don't go away mad. Please. So